So I get to talk with quite a few people. And what I learned from that is that legacy code is everywhere. I, I don't think I've met anyone who doesn't have to deal with legacy code in a substantial portion of his work, at least. Hello, and welcome to Code Recursive. I'm Adam. I'm Don. That was Jonathan Bocara. He's a French C++ developer, and he's on a mission to teach people how to work more effectively with legacy code, so much so that he's written a book all about it. I, I hope this book will change how people will see their everyday life with working with existing code. To write the book, Jonathan needed to define what legacy code was. It's essentially existing code that's hard to work with. I had to come up with a more precise definition, so my definition would be threefold. First, it's code that's hard to understand for you. Second, it's code that you're not comfortable changing. And, and, and three, it's code that you're somehow concerned with. So today, we want to answer this question. How do you get good at working with large existing code bases? How do you work with legacy code, basically? And how do you enjoy working with legacy code bases? We're going to talk about what legacy code is, how to work with it, how to improve it, um, when you shouldn't improve it. And as you said, you know, why you should want to, you know, be comfortable working with it, enjoy working with it. Yeah, legacy code is, after all, just code. And reading code and understanding it is is what our job is all about. Yeah, there's this quote from Joel Spolsky about legacy code. The reason that developers think that old code is a mess is because of a cardinal fundamental law of programming. It's harder to read code than it is to write it. Nobody talks about that, right? It's totally true. Like r writing code is easier than, than reading it. That's weird, right? Like it's the opposite of what you would expect. Like It's, it, it's very counterintuitive. Yeah, so today we're going to explain how to live with and, and love the legacy code that you have to work with and how to think about code you're not familiar with in general, how to get comfortable with it. And to do that, I took my various questions about legacy code to Jonathan. Yeah, his process is to accept the code, critique it, own it, document it, and improve it. And we're going to take you through all the stages. Let's start at the beginning. I've been a software developer for a couple of years now, like eight years. I noticed that people around me, like the people I met, like at Meetup or on the internet or whatever, they were sad about about the code they were working with. And I think it's a terrible thing because most of us, we choose our job out of passion. You know, quite a few developers have been programming before they were actually working as a developer. And it really saddens me when I see people's motivation wither over time because it's not what, what they were expecting and they don't really know what to do with it and they feel like they're a victim of, of, of code and and they feel like they ended up in the worst place on earth. When you think about it, when you get into a new job, like if you it's like your first job or something, you're probably going to get into an existing project and perhaps this project or company has been there for years and and some other people have worked on it perhaps quite a lot of other people. And so on your first day, you're going to be thrown into that huge sea of code written by perhaps dozens or more of people over years. So you have to be able to work with that somehow. When you enter a company, chances are you're going to have to face some code that's not as easy to work with as, as you would wish it were. So yeah, that's a, an essential thing because you 
that's what's out there and you have to do something with it. So I would call this acceptance. Except that as a professional, you need to deal with old, possibly crappy code. Yeah. Google has tons of old C++ code. Facebook has tons of old PHP code. Somebody's maintaining old versions of Windows. And just being old or not being in your favorite language doesn't mean that it's not valuable code. I, f- I feel like this is honestly the hardest part, accepting old crappy code and having to work with it. Definitely agree. All right, next up in Jonathan's steps is critiquing. When you look at a piece of code that you have written a while ago or that someone else has written, something that's not fresh for you, it happens uh, that it doesn't look quite right to you. Like It feels like it's badly written. And when you see that, you have two choices, I think. One of them is saying, "Eh, this is bad code, and move on. And the second choice is to try to express why this is bad code. Because it happens that you know this this, this piece of code is not well designed, but you can't quite place your finger about on what exactly is wrong with it. And sometimes it takes a bit of time of reflection and analysis to exactly pinpoint what's wrong with that piece of code. And being able to to critique this code in depth, being able to, to voice exactly in excruciating details why you don't like it, it, once you find that, when you, you identify what's wrong with it, you can you know what to pay attention to. You know that, that specific as- aspect of design you know, it's important because it made you feel uncomfortable in the first place. And next time you're going to write your own code, then you'll know you need to pay attention to that. By doing this kind of analysis, you get better as a programmer. I often compare that with a vaccine where you get mm. a shot of a disease, but that's not dangerous. And, and your body has time to do its stuff with the immune system, with antibodies or whatever. And then your body remembers it. It remembers exactly what's wrong with that molecule or whatever. If you happen to actually encounter the actual disease, then your body is going to recognize it and and smash it apart in no time. I really like this metaphor. Don't just say, oh, this this code is horrible. Uh, Understand why it is bad. Yeah, if you want to be a great developer, you should actually work on some legacy code. There is one caveat with this critiquing approach, though. Yeah, I was going to say, it's also a dangerous thing to do, to critique or rather to criticize code. As a natural reaction, people don't like existing code that, that, that they feel is badly designed. And sometimes it's badly designed, sometimes it's not badly designed, and it, it's more difficult than it looks, but it's not really the point. An important message I'm trying to get across is that you should not complain if you don't, if you don't intend, intend to improve the code. So you don't criticize just for the sake of it, because it's a natural thing to do. Um, and if you start by saying, oh, this code is terrible, oh, I would have done such a better job, and you do that all day, then you're going to get depressed, and you're going to depress everyone who sits around you. So I think you, yeah, you need to be careful to criticize only for learning purposes or improving the code. That's kind of the tricky part. It's really easy to complain about code that you have to work with. Like it, it just comes naturally, right? When you see some code, you're like, this is a mess. And it can actually be hurtful because the person who wrote it might be sitting nearby. 
And also, like, you don't understand the original constraints. Like, maybe this code made sense at some point. Maybe it still does, and it's just so complicated that you don't know how it's supposed to work. <laughs> I think that what Jonathan's trying to say is if you can try and move past that and uh, maybe accept it, then you can better yourself. If you have to work with codes, be it good, be it bad, be it the one you wrote or be it some, the one that someone else wrote, think about it as your code. If you're working on it, this is your code. You have to take ownership. And if, even if you don't think it, it's good, even if you didn't, didn't write it yourself, this is your code. And when you get into that mindset, you have the position as a leader. You feel empowered to do things with, with this code because this is your code. So it doesn't matter that it's bad. You have to make the most of it. And you, when you take the ownership over the code you're working on, you leave this victim attitude. Feeling that that's one one thing that's particularly frustrating with legacy code. It's when you feel like you're bearing the consequences of someone who made a poor design in the past, and it's it's not true, you know, because well, if, in the first place, maybe that person didn't make a poor design. Maybe just not seeing the big picture, and maybe even even in the same situation, you wouldn't wouldn't have done such a better job. This is such a great attitude. Like I've been, you know, accidentally on the receiving end of like what <laughs> what moron wrote this code um and it's not fun yeah i mean like ownership is a great attitude and also i think what you're talking about is empathy like have some empathy for the person that wrote it okay so far we have accepted our code we've learned how to critique our code and and take ownership over the code and don't be a dick you mean uh develop empathy maybe <laughs> yes and develop empathy and don't be a dick <laughs> all right before we leave uh critiquing Jonathan has a rule for what type of code critiques uh, he considers valid. Oh, that would be any critique that's technical. One thing that comes up very often is levels of abstraction. Uh, if, if I had to sum up best practices in, in three words, that would be those levels of abstraction. That's something that's sometimes not respected and that makes the code, the co the code look bad and complicated. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, when you have to choose a name of a parameter or anything else, really, but let's let's stick to the parameters example. That's a tricky thing to do. <laughs> that's like naming is is a difficult thing to get right in programming. Um, surprisingly, I think that to get the right name, you have to choose the name that's at the right level of abstraction. And to do that in practice, you have to think about what this object you're trying to, to name represents. It may sound a bit trivial, but this question, what is this object representing? I think it's, a, it's the crux of how to, go, to do good naming. Uh, for the example of the parameter, if you name your parameter with a name that reflects how it participates to the inside of the function, then you're, not, you're too low in terms of levels of abstraction because the parameter represents something that's at the same level as the name of the function. If it looks like something that's logical to implement a function, that's, then it's too low. And on the other hand, if, if you're too high in terms of level of abstraction for a parameter, that would be that your parameter is bound to uh, the, the context that uses that function. Does, uh, does this make sense? 
I think I think I understand if I have some function that is called, let's say, format email, and it takes in a string and it goes through and it removes um, any like double line breaks, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I call it that because I use it to format my email. So that is kind of a violation of this levels, right? Because it doesn't actually format an email. I'm, I'm giving it too s- specific of a name. What it's actually should be called is something like remove extra line breaks. Exactly. And your parameter shouldn't be called email, but should be called text, for example. That's, that's a great example because it's, um, it shows immediately. If you're keeping track, we have now covered accepting, critiquing, and also, you know, using that critique to improve your code. And speaking of fixing the code, should I just fix these right away when I find them? Oh, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't think so. <laughs> the thing is, it, it would be great, in theory. If you could fix the world, that would be awesome. But the thing is, legacy code base tend to be vast. Like, one thing that makes codes go into legacy codes is age. You know, like if you have old code, it has more chances to be legacy than like brand new code you just uh, ship. But I'm sure that all the code is not equal. And that really shows at any scale. Even if you look like at a function, you're going to see that all lines don't matter. That are just a handful of lines that really contain some meaningful action and I think that's true for like larger scales, like a code base. There are some places where you go everywhere, every, all the time. Everyone goes there all the time. That's the places that are hot, if I may say, in terms of like of cash, uh, cash vocabulary. It's the places that people change. They make fixes because they are bugs or because they are interesting and the clients want more features in them. And those parts, they represent a portion of your code base. And this is the portion that matter. The point of code is to make a piece of software run and, and to make it run in a way that will make customers happy. And that's a very harsh business view, but I think that's what code is for in, I mean, in a professional context, of course. So making code good has to somehow improve your business. So if you make code better, it, it can be because better code tends to have less bugs, mm-hmm. right? Or because it's easier to add features to better code than it is to code that you can't make any sense of. Like, for example, you shouldn't do a refactoring project just because it's easy to do or just because it doesn't cost a lot. Like, I hear people sometimes say, oh, I'm going to go in that code and and improve, I don't know, like the names or make the code cleaner. And and that's an easy thing to do. And if no one goes through that code, that doesn't matter. It's 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 the same thing as fixing some other's company code. You know, that won't make you better. That won't that won't make your business better. You're saying the cost is low but the value is is zero? Absolutely. That's exactly my point. Um, now, I'm not saying that naming is a bad thing. Na- naming is tremendously important, but that matters more in code that matters. So my biggest concern is not what Jonathan just described, like fixing code that that doesn't need to be fixed. It's actually 
just making code worse by, by trying to improve it. So I asked Jonathan how to deal with that situation. I think you can do the same kind of analysis. Like when you did choose to, to fix a piece of code, like to improve its quality by making a refactoring task. After it, I think it's a great thing not to move on immediately, but rather to think about why it's better. And once again, once again, it, it's not something that's obvious to do sometimes. Like for example, I remember one time where we had a slightly complicated if statement, like something that was an if involving several booleans and a bit of nesting, you know, nothing monstrous, but you know, mm. the thing that takes you a few minutes to figure out. And we were thinking, well, this this if we see it often, maybe we should do something about it. So we went about and and refactored it. And we moved it around, and somehow it was looking much better, much easier to understand. And then we stopped and thought, why is that? Why is it better? You know, it, it looks better. I feel I can understand it better, and that's the point of code, really. Mm -hmm. But why, why is that? And after, after a few, I don't know, like minutes, perhaps, or perhaps even more, I don't remember, maybe an hour, of analysis... Or perhaps like when you think about when you sleep on it, really, we realized it was better because it was sticking to the specification. Like the business had explained us, if such and such condition are met within this context and without this other, then we should do that thing. You know, and, mm -hmm. and after the refactoring, our if statement was looking exactly like that. And surprisingly, it was more nested. By nested, I mean when there is a if statement inside of an if statement, and you can measure nesting with uh, the indentation, indentation, which is the distance from the left margin of your screen. And you know, there's this this general guideline uh, about if statement. That's classical thing in programming, which is avoid nesting. Mm -hmm. Like like refactor your if statement so that they are as little nested as possible. If if can be not nested at all. And in this particular case, the, the if statement became more nested, but clearer. And that was because it, it, it stuck better to the specification. So we came up with that guideline that we try to use every time we have to do something that's related to a conditional, try to stick to the specification to what the business said more than about nesting. I liked this example, uh, the structural indenting. So following the rule very clearly, um, about reducing indent actually would lead you to a solution that was less good than uh, what you ended up with. Exactly. So that the rules, it's not its not totally rule-based, but you should be able to explain it somehow. Yeah, absolutely. You have to know the rules. Like You have to know that nesting is something that can be dangerous. That's a smell. But performing your analysis on, on your codes allows you to go further, expand beyond the rules. And that's like, you know, um, another level of skills. Learn the rules for improving code, but learn the exceptions. All right, we have hit accept it, critique it, and improve it. And there is one more key left to legacy code. And this one, I have to admit, is not my favorite. That is documentation. To Jonathan, the magic of documentation is... You can create understanding out of nowhere with documentation that's a very surprising thing to know to do because it's it sounds like magic but the very fact of explaining what you already understood helps you understand more 
you, mm-hmm. you probably know that if you have made a talk or written a blog post or written a book or written uh, actually a piece of documentation. Um, if you explain anything to anyone in any form, and I'm sure every listener did at some point, um, you know that this make you this 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 made you realize things, and if if anything else, it helped you realize that there were things you didn't know, there were holes in your understanding, and that gives you more questions to answer to to make a consistent hole. So that's just one aspect of how documenting helps understanding. Now, yeah, that's a great example because you're you're saying that. The, the actual act of explaining it to somebody via documentation actually deepens your understanding. It's a way to, to, for you to understand it better. Yeah. And of course, it goes without saying that it helps the other people that are going, that are going to read your documentation. Um, now, I think, yeah, when you're a software developer, uh, doing mentorment documentation is not hype. That's not the thing that motivates people becoming developers, or at least uh, most yeah. people I've met. Um, that's why I think it's important to realize how important it is, and that it's not a a terrible thing to do. And one f- way to this to see things that I've realized over time by actually managing people and making them write documentation is documentation just like improving good quality you don't do it because you don't do it because it's a good thing you know you don't you don't do it because you're a good person you do it because it helps the business hmm. and knowing that you you're going to quit this horrible it's horrible for everyone attitude where you write documentation like you would do homework you know, like, uh, my manager asked me to do that. I don't have a choice. I'm going to crank it out and, and be done with it. And that's the worst documentation you can make for you and for everyone. For you, because it's going to be a pain. And for everyone, because it shows. Really, when you read a piece of documentation that's been written by someone that didn't want to write it, that just just cranked it out, um, it shows. And you don't really understand, and it's not helpful. And And if it's not helpful then you wasted your time you know yeah that's a great attitude yeah so one simple tip i was going to say um when you write documentation is to to write it not because you have to because you're because you're you've been asked to or because you feel guilty not to <laughs> but write it to explain something you had a hard time understanding explain it to your past self because you know how it feels not to understand that thing you know what's easier to understand you know what's like the tricky parts and understand it like you are speaking yeah to your past self because other people are like your past self they don't know about it and actually your future self has a high chance to be like your past self at some point uh, regarding this particular um, topic in other words, document things because you're going to forget them and you're going to need to explain to your future self when you come back to this code, inevitably, what it does. Yeah, you're going to be the person reading this documentation. Yeah. So if you don't write it, you're just hurting yourself. So we understand now how to work with legacy code. We have accept it, critique it. Critique it nicely. Improve it. 
But don't make it worse. And document it. There's one item from the beginning we haven't covered, though, and that's how to enjoy working with existing code bases. The key to loving maintenance programming is understanding how valuable of a skill you're developing. Get good at it, master it, enjoy it. Or as Jonathan says, It's a fascinating thing to be programming. We love that. But more importantly, yeah, it empowers you to do great things and you can do fantastic things with legacy code. You can find out more about Jonathan and his book at co-recursive.com. This interview with Jonathan originally aired on SE Radio, uh, Software Engineering Radio. Uh, It's a great podcast. I'm one of the hosts. Let us know what you think of this show. I'm Adam Gordon-Bell. I am Don McKay. Until next time, thank you for listening. Do you have to do something special on a Mac than just tap? Okay. Other way. Oh, it's inverted? (laughs) Why is everything backwards with, with Macintosh?